to Genesis 1. As we're doing that, let me just draw your attention to three different resources that you can find this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to understand the gospel, here's a little tract that we have on the back table there. 30 seconds of reading will give you probably the clearest understanding of Christianity that you can get in this little booklet. Next, if you're here and you think you're a Christian, I want you to know that you live in the Bible Belt. The, the odds are fair to middling that you may not be a Christian. You could be deceived. You could be, this is just your sort of cultural practice. If you want to know whether or not that's the case, I'd encourage you to get a copy of this book over from the bookstall. And then finally, we're going to be talking a lot about men and women this morning and the unique way that the Lord has created them. And I want the women here to know that without you, our church could not uh, fully project the glory of God that he has given us out into the cosmos. So if you want to know how can a female not only survive but thrive in the local church, this is a little booklet for you back there on the bookstall. Before I even jump into the sermon, some preliminary matters. Uh, I told you guys last week I made a promise to you that this sermon was going to be a long one. And friends, I don't break my promises. So if you need to get up and go to the bathroom, no need to raise your hand, right? Uh, Also, though, do try to be quiet, walk softly, try not to distract everyone else around you when you do. And then finally, this morning's sermon is going to be good and glorious. It's it's also going to be challenging in certain ways for certain people. Uh, I don't anticipate that I'll be able to answer every potential question or objection that a member of our church or a visitor may have uh, after the sermon. I'd encourage you to take good notes so that you can ask good questions uh, with your elders and just with other members of the church in the days and weeks and months following this sermon. So, let's get started. Last week, we began to look at God's marvelous works of creation in the six days of Genesis 1. On the sixth day, God created man, and this was the apex of God's creation deeds. We saw that God created human beings to image him on the earth by exercising dominion over the earth. And now in this morning's text, what we're going to see is how human beings image God distinctly as both male and female. And so we'll do that by reading Genesis 1, and 28, the first poem in Scripture. Please follow along with me as I read aloud. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And indeed it is good. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and and completely sufficient word for our lives. Amen? Amen? 
Now, what you'll see in verse 27 is that there, in the first and the second lines of verse 27, as it appears to you there in your English Bibles, is that God created man in his image. Now, the word translated as man in your English Bibles doesn't refer merely to the male species, but rather to all of mankind. You can see this because there's a kind of parallelism here, which is a, it's inherent in Hebrew poetry. The first line, or the first two lines, say something, and then the next line comes along and says it a different way. So, God created mankind in his image, and in the next line it says, male and female, he created them. What God is telling us here is that there is no such thing as a generic, non-gendered image bearer. Making uh, mankind images God on the earth as both male and female. Just to say it another way, men alone cannot fully image God. Women alone cannot fully image God. The image of God, according to Genesis 1.27, is seen in the parity of male and female. Now, for any of my non-Christian friends who may be here this morning, you may wonder, why is it that Christians always seem to care so much about sex and marriage and gender and everything that's bound up with all of that? Well, it's, it's because of these verses right here. It's because of Genesis 1.27. We believe that men and women image God on the earth in a very particular way, according to a very good and immutable, that means unchanging, a very good and unchanging design. We Christians believe four pretty significant things about these verses. We believe that manhood and womanhood is taught clearly in the Bible. We believe that it is emphasized as important there in the Bible. So if, if someone ever comes along to you and says that Jesus in particular or the Bible in general doesn't have really much to say about sex and gender, you can just know that they're one of those people that critique a book without ever having read it, okay? Because the Bible talks about these things a lot. The third thing is that these truths about manhood and womanhood, they are inseparable from the Christian faith and then fourthly, these things that we learn in Genesis 1.27, we understand that God created us this way for our good and for His glory. So to say that another way, we believe that when we human beings live out these foundational creational truths, that human beings flourish on the earth. And we believe that when we human beings reject these creational foundational truths, that nothing but chaos and confusion and sin and suffering and sorrow will ensue. Now listen, we're going to spend the majority of this morning's sermon looking at the uniquely distinct ways that men and women image God. But before we talk about the differences, I want us to begin by seeing that the Bible does not begin by addressing our differences, but rather with our equality. One of the first things that we learn in Genesis 1.27, which is one of the first things that we learn in all the Bible, is that men and women are inherently equal in value, dignity, and worth. Do you understand how radical of an ideal this would have been in the ancient world? The God of the universe comes along and creates mankind to image him, and in a 
deeply patriarchal society, God doesn't say, I've created man in my image. And then, you know, the woman, she does her part too. Male and female are created in the image of God. And so men and women are equal. And yet, you'll notice that though equal, men and women are not the same thing. There is a reason why God refers to mankind in two separate and distinct terms, male and female. You see, friends, when God created man, he was not aiming for some kind of bland, boring, drab uniformity in his good creation. If God wanted uniformity, he could have created an entire race of men. That would not be good. He could have created an entire race of women. That would not be good. He could have even created an entire race of sort of asexual beings. But he did not do that. Instead, he created two very different kinds of human beings and then called them together into a bond of oneness. He called human beings to be distinct in their persons and yet to come together and image him in their unity. Jesus himself says this. He says, when human beings come together, they are no longer two but one flesh. And then listen to the language he uses. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. How has God joined men and women? You're like, I don't feel like God joined me with my husband when we were there at the marriage altar. He joined you because this was his design. That you come together, united as one, to image him. Now, you may sometimes hear a lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning in in the language of complementarianism complementarianism. That's a big word, but the idea is a simple one. God created men and women to be different, but complementary, right? We're going to talk about this more, but for now, let me just say that men and women were not created to compete, but rather to harmonize. Men and women were created to sing different parts of the same song, and when men and women come together and harmonize well, It makes beautiful music to the glory of God. But when men and women try to compete, each trying to sing the same part of the song louder than the other so that they can be most heard, well, then it sounds like nothing else in the world and not in a good way. Okay, so that's kind of the text. That's the exegesis. That's what what is happening in Genesis 1.27. Now we need to dig a little bit deeper into what it means for our lives. And I think we all know, it's been addressed already in our service leading this morning, that our culture is deeply confused on the subject of sex and gender. And I think we all probably know that some of this confusion has made its way into the church. It's true that, yes, most Christians are wise enough to know that boys can't turn into girls and girls can't turn into boys. That's good. But there does seem to be a a mid to low grade confusion in the church about what it means to live as men and to live as women in the world. For many Christians, the sum total of our understanding of maleness and femaleness is that men have one kind of genitalia and women another. And that's kind of about all we know. In contrast, the Bible teaches that men and women 
are distinctly male and female all the way through. From the tops of their heads all the way down to the bottom of their feet. To be male or female is not merely an XX or XY pairing of the chromosomes. Manhood and womanhood is more, much more, gloriously more than which sex organs God has given you. God has designed human beings to express our maleness and our femaleness in every aspect of our being. Biological, emotional, intellectual, relational, vocational, other words that end with A-L. To say it another way, we believe that the testimony of Scripture, of nature, of reason, and even of our own conscience, even though it's messed up by sin, even our own conscience bears witness to us that these things are true. There is obviously male and female anatomy. There are obviously male and female roles in the home, the church, and society at large. There is obviously male and female work. There is obviously male and female emotional tendencies. There are obviously male and female sin patterns. Men, we're going to be talking directly to you a little bit later about some of the unique ways that you do not glorify God in your maleness. There is obviously male and female discipleship and discipling. That is, the way that we follow Jesus is gendered, and the way that we help each other follow Jesus is gendered. And the list could go on. Now, before we get started, let me get out ahead of one particular objection that I may hear after the sermon. It's the, uh, and this is the technical term, the yeah, but what about objection. It's not technical. Courtesy laugh. Go ahead. There we go. The what about objection, it usually goes something like this, okay? I'll say something just obviously true, like men are stronger than women. And then I'll have someone come up to me and they'll say something like, well, my wife, and I'll use my wife as an example because she's very strong uh, and beautiful. Uh, Well, my wife can deadlift more than most men. Okay, well, that may be true, but it is the exception that proves the rule. While there may be individual instances where this isn't true, that men are stronger than women, it is still generally true in all places and at all times that men are stronger than women. All this to say, much of this morning's sermon, uh, as I try to weave some of the application, is going to deal in generalizations. And for that, I offer no apologies. This is the way that life works. In general, women were designed to breastfeed their babies. Yes, I understand that some women are unable to do that, but they are the exception that proves the very good rule that God gave women breasts to feed their children, amongst other things. In general, yes, I understand that men should be the protectors of their homes. There may be a situation that you've heard of where in some peculiar circumstance, the woman protected the family from the intruder in the night. Praise God. But that is an exception that proves the general rule that if you hear someone breaking into your house in the middle of the night, the wife wakes up the husband and says, go see who's at the door. So if I, throughout the course of the sermon, say something like this, men are more oriented towards telling their sons after an injury to get up and walk it off, and women are more oriented towards saying, come here, baby, are you okay? Let me get your little boo-boo, right? 
that you not come up to me and you go, well, actually, in, in our family, I'm the one who's kind of hard on the kids, and my, my husband, he's really sweet and tender. While that may be true, and I have some questions, uh, it is the exception that proves the general rule. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to try to make these points as quick as possible. So here we go. Point number one, biology. The first way that men and women uniquely image God is in our biological differences. At the most basic level, men and women are bi- biologically distinct. You can see this all the way down at the level of our DNA, the pairings of the 23rd chromosomes. Men have XY, women have XX. Now, this biological difference uh, doesn't seem to create a stark variation in the early months of childhood development in the womb, but within just a few months, the sex organs of the babies begin to clearly differentiate, and we know that because we go to the doctor, and we rub the goo on the belly, and we take the picture, and all the husbands go, oh yeah, I see it, when we, we don't see anything. <laughs> As biological development continues, we see the physical differences steadily increase until puberty happens, when hormonal jet fuel is injected into the body's endocrine system, and these differences just grow and grow. Men grow taller, women remain shorter. Men's shoulders grow wide, women's remain narrow. Men get firmer, stronger, denser. Women get softer in all the places that one might expect softness to be useful for the kind of being who was designed to care for life. Men begin to produce sperm, women begin to produce ovum. Men's sex uh, sex organs are outward-facing. Women's are inward-facing. Men's bodies become testosterone factories. And women's bodies produce a whole bunch of things that I can't really speak on. Men's voices grow deep and gravelly with age. Women's voices grow soft and tender. Men get really hairy and smelly. Women, not so much. And if you have an exception to that rule, don't come and tell me after the service. (laughs) Now, the list could go on, but the point is men and women are biologically distinct. Now, this, what I'm about to say, it may sound like a joke, it's not. Uh, If you have a question about, like, intersex beings like hermaphrodites, I I don't want to talk about that in the sermon, it's just a waste of time, but come and ask me about it and I'll explain more. The second way that men and women image God uniquely in their genders is emotions, The emotional experiences of men and women as embodied persons are gloriously distinct. Now, it's true. Men and women are both emotional creatures by nature. Yes, of course, to feel is to be human. But the experience and the expression of our emotions is very much connected to our maleness and femaleness. In general, in general, everybody nodding that they hear what I'm saying, In general, men tend to be less emotional. Men, on the other hand, tend to feel emotions more deeply and express them more openly. Although men and women are both capable of being led by both emotion and logic, when it comes to things like problem solving, men tend to be more logically inclined. Women tend to be more emotionally inclined. You think that this isn't true? You've not been married? Wife comes home after a hard day wants to talk with her husband, what are the dynamics at play? 
Husband's listening like, I can fix this, I can fix this, I can fix this. He's, he's listening to hear what she has to say so he can break her words down and the events of the day down and like a machine and then put it back together. I've fixed your problems. The wife is f- increasingly frustrated throughout the course of the day in the conversation. Why? Because I don't, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. Women are more likely to express frustration through sadness Men through anger. If you think that this is not true, I'd encourage you to spend less time reading books and more time around human beings, particularly children. Even the sex act itself bears out the emotional differences between men and women. Think about what it takes to get the emotions going necessary in order to come together as one. What what does it require of a man? Well, you touch a shoulder, right? What does it require of a woman? Do the dishes, engage with the children, be emotionally available throughout the day. And you can see these emotional differences in men and women blossom as children age. Just think about the differences in the competitive drives of men and women. As testosterone skyrockets in boys, turning them into men, they become highly competitive. Now, I'm not saying that women can't be competitive as well. They certainly can, but they are just competitive in ways that are very different than men. Just think about it. Anywhere that you get a group of boys together, what's going to happen? There's going to be some kind of organized physical competition. King of the hill, wrestling, fighting, race to see who's faster, basketball, football, whatever the case may be, boys are going to sort it out physically. If you leave a group of young women together... Well, I don't know that I'm qualified to speak about that, but you get the point. Things will be different because men and women image God differently in their emotional lives. Point number three, men and women image God distinctly in their gender identity. Now, I'm using that phrase, gender identity, as a term of reference. I think it's particularly unhelpful. I'll explain. In our culture, sex typically refers to one's biological markers, Whereas gender refers to our socially constructed expressions of our biology. Uh, This idea is foreign to the Bible that that our gender expressions are only and merely socially constructed. And by the way, up until about five minutes ago, no human being ever thought that. What scripture teaches us, and nature and reason as well, is that the social expression of manhood and womanhood flows naturally out of who we are as men and women. Now, I'm not saying that that culture has no bearing on our gendered expressions, okay? Why is, is blue for boys and pink for girls? That's not in the Bible. That's not according to nature. That is cultural. That is arbitrary. Even so, we must recognize that by and large, men tend to act like men and women tend to act like women, not because they have been conditioned to do so, but because they have been designed to do so. What are the odds that every tribe and civilization and people across the globe and across all times have all culturally conditioned all of the men to act like this and all of the women to act like like that. It doesn't make any sense. From South America to Spain, from England to the United States, from ancient civilizations to modern alike, boys like to throw rocks at each other and little girls like to pretend to be mommies. Point number four. Men and women image God distinctly in their sex. The differences between men and women can be 
clearly seen even in the sex act itself. Uh, I'm not going to be crude here, but I'm going to use an agricultural metaphor because that's the metaphor that the Bible uses, so that seems safe, right? In the act of procreation, men plant the seed, whereas women receive the seed and cultivate it for growth. Our culture wants us to believe that sex is merely a physical act that human beings can carry out willy-nilly for their pleasure, but the truth of sex is more than that. It's gloriously and beautifully more than mere physical pleasure. In the sex act, a man and a woman, with all of their many glorious differences, come together to become one. Not just to be physically one, but to be emotionally one, to be spiritually one, to to bind their whole lives together. Everything that I have is yours. Everything that you have is mine. And it's going to be like that for the rest of our lives. And this image is God himself. Now this sex act, one of the reasons why it's glorious is because it has a purpose beyond itself. Look at verse 28 again. Genesis 1, 28. This is right after he says, male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God says, I didn't make you separate so you could remain separate. I made you separate so you can come together to be one and to multiply and to fill the earth. And this is glorious. Point number five. Men and women image God distinctly in their reproduction. Evangelicals, gospel people, Protestants of a particular variety, we have done a relatively poor job of thinking about the glories of sex as it relates to reproduction. I mean, to be honest, most of us haven't really thought about it at all. How does sex relate to reproduction? And what does God's word say about how sex relates to reproduction? We have been largely influenced by a culture that says that reproduction is merely incidental to God's good design for sex rather than integral to it. Or to say it another way, we think that the glorious gift of sex can be separated from the glorious gift of children. And in a fallen world, that may sometimes be true, but Genesis 1.28 teaches us that the most normal and blessed state of affairs for sex is that the one flesh union produces offspring to multiply, to fill the earth, and spread the glory of God. My point here is going to be a simple one, maybe a little controversial. Evangelicals have a history of thinking very superficially and poorly, and when I say evangelicals, I'm including myself. I'm the guy that when I married my wife, I said, we're not having kids for 10 years because, you know, I got to live my life, okay? We've done a relatively poor job, we, about thinking about things like birth control, contraceptives of various kinds, vasectomies, so on. So let's talk about it, starting with birth control. Many evangelicals think nothing whatsoever about taking birth control. It's just natural. It's just what you do. The culture says women, when they don't want to have kids, they take birth control. 
Now, to be fair, there are many thoughtful, faithful Christian women who have dug in a little bit, but even then, most of the time, the ethical line is drawn at, I'll take birth control as long as it's not an abortive fashion. I'm not so sure that this is the most healthy way to think about the matter. So brothers and sisters, and by the way, I'm saying brothers and sisters here, I'm not just speaking to women because I reject the lie that our culture tells us that your body is your own, ladies. When you marry a man, your body is not your own, and the man's body is not his own. You have come together as one. And so when you think about things like birth control and vasectomies, you should be thinking about these things together. So, brothers and sisters, do you understand what birth control is and what it does to your body? I'm not going to try to give you a whole science lesson, but I just feel like I've never heard Christians say these things, and we should. When women take birth control, they are consuming exogenous sex hormones, artificially in a lab created, and that's not necessarily bad, but sex hormones that are pumped from outside of your body into your body in order to stop your body's very natural, very good design to create children. In marriage, when a couple decides to use birth control, what they're aiming to do is to separate God's design of sex from the purpose of sex. By, if we're being honest, kind of playing God with your endocrine system. Friends, just because something is common in our culture does not mean that it is ethically good. Now women, you must know you must know that it is not a natural thing to stop your body cycle. It's not natural. Naturally, the only time women's bodies cycle stop is when they're in very serious danger. They're close to dying. In, 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 in um, basic training, many of the women don't have their cycles anymore. Why? Because they're under extreme duress and their body is in emergency mode. So it says, we're not going to produce life under these circumstances. That's what you're artificially stimulating in yourself. You may hear me this morning and think that I'm saying, well, Sean says women can never take birth control. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, have you even stopped to think about what it is that you're doing? Have you thought about what it's doing to your body biologically? Have you thought about the potential side effects that it can have on all kinds of different things in your body? Have you thought about whether or not it's a good thing in your youngest most fruitful and fertile years, when you are primed to have babies and raise them well, to stop that artificially? Have you even thought about it? It could be unwise at best. It could be sinful at worst. Many Christians have come to believe that it is normal to assume the responsibility of marriage and sex, but then wait a little while longer before assuming the responsibility of children. But friends, where does this idea come from? Is it in the Bible? I can't find it there. Up until about five minutes ago, Christians have always assumed if you're ready to be married and have sex, then you're ready to assume the responsibilities that come along with the purpose of sex. Rebecca Merkel has noted, many married Christian couples think of birth control almost as a sacrament. And many treat the idea of babies as an optional add-on to their relationship. 
We live in a society which despises fruitfulness, tolerating it only when it is a sort of self-conscious decision. Uh, A baby added on as a little garnish on top of a successful career, like the small flourish of kale on the side of your dinner plate. It's not really necessary, more decorative, and definitely not the point of the meal. But even if that's not the way you think about children, because that's a bit much, that language is a little strong. You may say, Sean, I don't think about babies like that. But at some level, you must. If you're saying, my life will be less than if I have children. Now, let's talk more specifically to the men. Men, I want to challenge you to think very deeply about the gravity of a procedure like a vasectomy. When it's talked about in the doctor's office, I used to assist with vasectomies when I was a medic in the army. The way they sell it's like nothing. Hey, you want to have any more kids? Boom, come in, 20-minute appointment, little incision, bing, bang, boom, we're done. We've all watched the office. If you want to get it undone, you can get it undone. Snip, snap, snip, snap. <laughs> right? There may be a handful of morally acceptable real reasons to sterilize yourself, but most of the reasons that I've heard from men are simply, I want to be able to have sex with my wife, and I don't really want any more children. Now, again, there may be a few morally permissible reasons for men to separate sex from childbearing and to have this procedure. I'm thinking about perhaps a woman who in her last pregnancy nearly died, right? Like, there's no way she can survive another pregnancy. Okay, well, that's reasonable. Maybe there's a a missionary couple on the field, and they have two kids, and man, they have a rockin' ministry, and they are crushing it, and they feel like if I have one more kid, we're gonna have to come home from the mission field, and our gospel call will have to come to an end. Okay, well, that may be reasonable. I don't want to render a judgment on that right now, but it's in the realm of reasonableness. But I can also think of like a thousand reprehensible, utterly carnal and selfish reasons for men to get a vasectomy. Now listen, Jesus has a category of men who choose to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God, but men who are eunuchs for the kingdom of God are not already married with a few children. I want you to Think carefully about these things from a Christian worldview. I don't want you to just hear, a doctor says I can do it, why not? Just stop and ask yourself, is there anything in God's word that might lead me to reconsider getting this done? Then for the men and women in the room both, there are many marriages, and uh, mine is one of them. I've been there, we've had these conversations, where uh, one spouse wants to have more kids, and the other spouse doesn't for various and sundry reasons. Here's what I want to say about that. Before you deny your spouse, and before you deny your family, and before you deny the earth, the very good gift of children, examine your heart and ask yourself if the reasons why you don't want to have more children are godly or selfish and carnal. I'm not standing here trying to be the judge of what you and your wife do with your family or you and your future wife or you and your future husband. I'm just calling you to think, to consider carefully, and to believe that God's word does address these things. Point number six, marriage. Men and women image God distinctly in their married lives. This is pretty simple, Ephesians 5, right? It teaches us that men and women relate to one another in marriage in different but complementary ways. Wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. 
Husbands love their wives sacrificially like Christ who gave his life for his bride. When we do this well, we image God in a glorious way. When we do this well, we preach a gospel sermon with our lives and with our marriages. Now, I understand that the language of headship and submission may scare some of us because it's been abused. But friends, all authority is abused. You just cannot escape it. Any good thing that God has given us has been abused, will be abused again in the future. But friends, everything good in this world, though it can be abused, the better it is, the worse it is when it is abused. So maybe you've been really, really, really hurt by headship and submission in marriage. But maybe that's because it's really, really, really good. And when it goes bad, it goes terribly bad. But that doesn't mean that we should just cast it aside. It is a good gift from God. Point number seven, singleness. As you read this creation account, it seems like there is something about men and women coming together that images God most clearly. Genesis 1, it gives us the big picture. God creates humans to image him as men and women, but then Genesis 2 does something kind of cool. It zooms in, and it gives us a closer look into how that works. In Genesis 2, we see that man is alone and it's not good. Look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. Just flip over there. Genesis 2, 18. We read this last week. We'll read it again. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In order for the creation of mankind to be called good, in order for mankind to image God fully on the earth, there needs to be an Eve. There has to be a woman. Why? Because Adam can't exercise dominion alone. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What does this imply? That in order for Adam to image God through dominion, he needed a helper. A mineral won't do. A plant won't do. An animal will not do. He needs another human. Another male will not do. What he needed was a female, a distinct human being, to come together and to be one with him so that he could image God and carry out the work of dominion. Friends, what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that mankind was not created for singleness. Now listen, I'm about to say something that you've probably not heard before. It's true. It may jar you a little bit, but if you'll just stay with me instead of sort of getting offended and kind of pulling your arms and legs into your turtle shell, I think actually if you'll just risk the offense up front, in the end you'll see something incredibly glorious. But you have to, you have to stay with me all the way through the journey. What the Bible teaches is that singleness is not good. What the Bible teaches is that singleness is not good. Now, Let's keep going. Let's get past this. Let's, let's see how the gospel changes this. 
And it's important that we do see that because I was talking about this text and the meaning of the text with a bunch of different people this week, many conversation partners, and some of the pastors that I talked with about this, they were less concerned with whether or not what I'm saying is true and more concerned with how people might hear it in the congregation, right? Well, what about the singles in your church? When you say that, they're going to be hurt, they're going to be offended, they're going to feel like second-class citizens, to which I would say that could be true except for the fact that the gospel changes everything. And I'm going to show you how, so stay with me. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, marriage and children are a picture of God's blessing and fruitfulness. Additionally, all throughout the Old Testament, prolonged singleness, and I'm saying the word prolonged on purpose because we're all born single and most of our spouses are going to die not at the same time as us, so we're probably going to die single, but prolonged singleness and childlessness is a curse. But that changes in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Paul comes along and he says, I wish that everyone were as I am, single and without children. Now, how can Paul say that? Do we believe that the Bible teaches one thing in the Old Testament and something different and contradictory in the New Testament? No. Did Paul not understand his Bible very well? No. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He understood the Bible like the back of his hand. So what is Paul doing? How can he come along and say, I wish that everyone were single, when in his mind he knows that God's word has been clearly saying throughout all of the Old Testament that it is not good to be single. Well, Jesus changes everything. In the gospel, what we learn is that there is no such thing as a truly single person. This is the language of union with Christ and union with the body of Christ. You see this all throughout the New Testament. I have a thousand scripture references. I would just encourage you just go to your phone and type in union and then just look them all up yourself as like a little study this afternoon. The language of union is the language of marriage. It's the language of distinct beings coming together to form one, to form a bond. What the gospel says is that when we are dead in sin, we are separated from God. But when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are reunited to God through Christ. We are in union with him. This is the same language as Genesis 1, 27 and 28. We come together as one. And not only do we come together with Jesus, but we also come together and form a union with his bride. But let's just stick with the theme of Jesus for a minute. Think about this. Who images God perfectly? Jesus. He is the exact representation of his nature. As the author of Colossians says, he is the very image of God. So as a single person, you are united to Christ in marriage, and then you with Christ, your husband, and that's true for men and women, with Christ, your husband, you image God throughout the earth. But we're not done yet. There's more to consider. You see, your union with Christ as a single person empowers you to do something that married people with children cannot do. This is where everything gets turned upside down in this strange new gospel kingdom that Jesus is creating. You see, married people have to be concerned with their wives and their husbands and their children. And that means that a lot of this has to be spread out here. 
Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, you have to be anxious for earthly things. But if you're single, you don't have to be anxious about any of that. You can pick up and go tomorrow. You can sacrifice it all for the sake. When me and Amber were on the mission field, I had to think, oh, patience is sick with a fever in the jungle. Uh, What am I going to do? Are we going to have to go home? That sort of thing. When you're single, you don't have to do that. You are freed up to make spiritual children through evangelism and discipleship in a way that married people with children are not free. Now, I don't want you to walk away from this little section thinking that I sort of just kind of cobbled this all together to make single people feel better about something hard that the Bible says. I didn't. This is deeply biblical. The idea that single people are married to God and therefore will in one sense have more children than those who are married. Well, let me just read it for you. Isaiah 54. Begins with a command. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. And we don't live in tents, so that doesn't make sense to us. But what he's saying is, build your house as big as you can possibly build it. Why? For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants... Your children and grandchildren will dispossess nations and settle into their desolate cities. You're going to fill the earth with your glory, the glory of your spiritual children. Do not be afraid, you single woman. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. To the singles in the church, listen, I don't want to take anything away from how difficult it is to be single. I know. I know how hard it must be. It has to be hard. It has to be hard because of what we're learning from Genesis 1.27. We weren't created to be alone. We were created to be united to other human beings. But I also want you to see that the suffering that you experience in your singleness is a gift from God. That's the way the gospel works, right? It turns suffering into glory. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you, it has been gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If you are here this morning and you are suffering as a single person, I want to just say this to you. It has been gifted to you, at least for now. That may change, but it has been gifted to you for now that you suffer for Christ as a single person. But that suffering is not in vain. Your suffering has been given to you for a good gospel purpose. So I plead with you, do not call this thing a curse that God has made into a blessing. Sing and shout for joy, for the Lord is your husband. And I know it's hard to sing when you're hurting. But in one sense, isn't that what all of the Christian life is? Trying to praise God even through the deepest possible pain. Point number eight. Vocation. 
We uniquely image God as men and women in our vocations. The term vocation, it just refers to our sense of calling, our feeling of suitability for a particular field or occupation. This too is an aspect of our maleness and femaleness. Listen, every now and then we will see weird things like uh, male nannies, right? There's a whole Friends episode about that. Every now and then we'll see female construction workers, but those are the exceptions that prove the rule, right? There's a reason why women don't lay brick or dig ditches eight hours a day or get into roofing. Conversely, there's a reason why we don't typically see men uh, thrive and prosper as childcare workers or hairdressers or dental hygienists or some other field like the social sciences that particularly seem to be places where women flourish. Now, you may be thinking, well, Sean, we're just talking. Yeah, I get it. Men and women are physically different. Men are stronger than women. They're going to be more inclined to do laborious jobs than women are. But aren't you stretching this a bit much? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Consider this. The majority of those studying and teaching humanities and social sciences and who are involved in caregiving fields like nursing and nursing assistant, those are predominantly women, like three-quarters and above women. Conversely, the majority of those in the STEM fields are men. And what's really interesting is that in certain parts of the world where they've tried to manufacture these egalitarian societies where men and women in every way possible socially are completely and 100% the same, what they found is that this has actually gotten worse Men do more men jobs, and women tend to do more women jobs. Additionally, there are other factors that will necessarily affect the vocational trajectories of our gendered existence. Consider the good gift of motherhood. Not all women will be mothers, but most will. And when a woman has children, it becomes exceedingly difficult to devote yourself to two big things at once. To be the very best mom you can be and to have the very best career you can have. To have a full-time motherhood and a full-time career. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying it's difficult. Now, you may want to stop me here and say, well, Sean, uh, why can't the dad stay home with the baby while the mom goes out and, and has her career? Well, friends... I have an answer for that, but I kind of can't believe I need to have an answer for that, you know? Do I really need to explain this to you? Do your bodies not bear witness to the reality that even though men should be at home, women need to be very close to their children in their young years? You see, you have these two things on your chest called breasts, and I'm not trying to be funny. I'm being very serious. The Lord gave them to you, and he miraculously fills them with food for your children. And that's not just food. When your children are at your chest, it produces attachment and bonding. It strengthens their immune system. The nearness of the child to you means that you're always ready to hear them in case they're in trouble or danger. You're always ready to fix some other issue that may be going on with them. Friends, the reality that motherhood will affect your vocation, and I would say in a very good way, even though you may think it's a bad way, 
Whether you realize it or not, it's built into your very bodies. And much could be said about how the Industrial Revolution has messed up the home by causing men to work outside and away from home for eight hours a day, but we just don't have time. I want to close out this section by talking to young women. Because I know that there are so many young women who are living conflicted and confused lives. Because everything in their nature, their female nature, is crying out to them, be who God created you to be. Be a Proverbs 31 woman. Get married. Have a bunch of kids. Use your home and all the gifts God gave you therein to glorify God with your many gifts and opportunities. But the world, I mean, I took my daughters, I took my daughters to the Girl Scout meeting thinking, Girl Scouts, right? That would be great. It's like as American as apple pie. When, got, got the pamphlet. What, what are the Girl Scouts going to tell my daughters about how to grow up into, woman, in, in, into women? Nothing about motherhood. Nothing about being a wife. Nothing about being faithful to the Lord. Everything about how to be just like men are. The world is preaching a different sermon to you, young women. And it has been your entire lives. It's telling you that you can only be fulfilled if you sacrifice the good gifts of womanhood. To the women of this church, the calling of biblical femininity, it is glorious. And it will not look the same for all of us. But do not let this world bully you into calling a curse what God has made you for as a blessing. Point number nine. Men and women image God distinctly in their familial lives. Sociologists have found that children thrive less in orphanages than in a nuclear family with two parents. Duh, right? But what they've also found is that children tend to thrive less in exceptionally well run orphanages. They thrive less than in low-quality two-parent homes. So there's an orphanage that's more equipped to meet children's, need, children's needs in every way, hygienic needs, medical needs, psychological needs, educational needs, communal needs. And yet the children that come from these orphanages tend to thrive less than children who come from two-parent homes, even where those two-parent homes are not that healthy. Why? It's because God has created men and women to be the centerpiece in the family for the lives of their children. We're not talking about survival. We're talking about thriving. Survival's easy, I think. Can two women raise a baby up into adulthood? Yes. Can two men? Of course. Can a team of professional caregivers? Absolutely. A single mother? Yes. That was my situation. A single father? Yes. Can grandparents raise a baby up? Of course. But what the research has shown over and over again, demonstrating the truth of Scripture, is that what children need most, not to merely survive, but to thrive in this world, is a mom and a dad. Why? 
because of all of that complementary uh, complementarianism stuff we were talking about earlier. God made moms and dads to be different but complementary. Right? Think about it. Men were better suited for things like discipline and protection. Women are better suited for things like nurturing. Right? Now listen. That doesn't mean that in a fallen world there won't be single moms who are just doing their best. And praise God for the single moms that are doing their best. There will also sometimes be single fathers, although that's less frequent because of the unique ways that men tend to sin in, this, sin in this world. But even single moms will tell you, they'll be the first ones to tell you, this is really hard. It's really hard. Why is it so hard? Because I'm, I'm just a mom. I'm not a mom and a dad. You know, one of the things that you'll notice uh, about homosexual relationships is that one partner tends to assume the dominant male sex characteristics and the other party will always tend to assume the submissive female tendencies, especially when children are involved. Well, why is that? It's because we all know, at the deepest possible level, we all know that we were created to be male and female. And even when we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the truth of who we are in our very natures is always going to try to rise up to the top. Point number 10. Men and women image God distinctly in their Christian discipleship. In Galatians 3, Paul says that there is no male or female in Christ Jesus, but all are one. What Paul cannot mean there is that you stop being a female and you stop being a male. We know that just by reading the rest of his writings, right? In the rest of his writings, he refers to very particular male and female ways that we follow Jesus. Just Titus 2 for one example. God gives gender-specific instructions for older men in the church and how they're going to raise up young men for godliness. And then he gives gender-specific instructions for older women in the church and how they're going to raise up younger women for godliness. Even Ephesians 5, right? How do we relate together as married couples? Paul doesn't say, uh, we're all one in Christ, you know, so just follow Jesus. He goes, no, men, listen to me. You have a very specific way as a man that you are called to love your wife. And women, listen to me, there's a very specific way that you are called to love your husband. Even when addressing parents and children, you'll notice that Paul just stops for a second to give a particular exhortation to men. He says, fathers, do not... What does he say? Huh? Do not provoke your children to anger. Why doesn't Paul say that to the women? Because <laughs> that's just not really what women do. But dads, we can provoke our children to anger. I, I, I assume. I've never done it or been close to it. But <laughs> you'll even notice that in the Ten Commandments, it says, honor your mother and father. Again, in a, in a patriarchal society, you would expect it to say, honor your father. But he doesn't say that. Honor your mother and your father. Why? Because only when mom and dad are together in one are they exercising the full dominion of God imagery. So, any attempt to answer this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? must necessarily take our maleness and femaleness into account. Any attempt to answer the question, how can I help someone else follow Jesus, must necessarily 
take our maleness and femaleness into account. Can we overdo it? Yes, we can, we have, we might in the future. Some of these men's ministries are just absolutely ridiculous. But that doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Point number 11, men and women image God distinctly in society in general. Society, a word we use, probably couldn't explain it if we needed to. Society is just the word that we use to describe human nature writ large, right? What we've learned this morning is that human nature is always male and female, which means that our maleness and femaleness is always, 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 always going to be evidenced in the broader society. Even if we try to crush and kill, and hide, and disguise our differences, even if we try to blow our differences to smithereens, our distinct natures will always show themselves, not just in our individual lives, not just in our family lives, not just in the church, but in civilization in general. Now let's go back to this word complementarianism that we talked about earlier. Within the camp of complementarianism, uh, where the broad camp is we believe that God created males uh, headship and submission, right? Uh, Ephesians 5, right? Men, you serve like this. Women, you serve like this. And it's this glorious picture of the gospel. Within that vision, there are two different camps. One is narrow complementarianism. The other is broad complementarianism. E- egalitarians, the ones who say there's no difference, we're all exactly the same, uh, they say stuff that's not true. But Narrow complementarians, we say, listen, men and women are equal in value and dignity and worth, and we have distinct roles to play when it comes to authority and submission, but those roles only apply in the home and in the church. Broad complementarians, I'm a broad complementarian, say that men and women are always, and in every sphere of life, men and women, and the way that they relate to one another will always express itself according to God's good design of creation. From the boardroom to the bedroom, from the church to the world of sports, in our hormones and in the broad trajectories of our lives. So let me just give you one example of how broad complementarian thinking might apply. When it comes to the question, who should protect All complementarians would say men should protect. Okay, that's just a complementarian position. But a broad complementarian would say a little bit more than that. A broad complementarian would say that a a woman should never really be put in a position where she has to carry out violence in order to protect. Okay, she may be put in that position. We live in a fallen world. You know, someone breaks in, she's at home alone with the kids. She grabs the gun, whatever the case may be. But if there is a man and a woman, a man should always be the one to protect. So we see that at three different levels. The lowest level is in the family, and this is the one that's easiest for us to grasp. Why? Because if we don't grasp this, we'll pay the price, right? I would be very surprised if there was any woman in here who said, when I hear someone breaking into our house, I want my husband to stay put, and I'm going to go check out the burglar situation. Why? Because you know that when you encounter that burglar climbing in through the window, that you may have to do violence to protect. 
That's pretty easy to understand. But yet when we extrapolate out beyond the home, we start making all kinds of categorical errors and we start being inconsistent. So for example, should women be in the military? Well, probably not. Probably not. Why? What do you do in the military? Your job is to use violence to protect the citizenry of the land. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, uh, I was in the military and I didn't do violence. Well, yeah, my wife was in the military too. But you know what she did in basic training? She trained to kill people. You know what she carried when she deployed into an active war zone? A gun full of bullets. Those bullets didn't plant trees in the ground. She was trained to kill, and it was expected that if the need arose, she would do violence to protect our country. This is out of the natural ordering of God's good creation, according to male and female. And even below something like that, like, friends, I'm not so sure that women should be police officers. Have you seen any of these videos on the internet where a woman gets out and she's, can I see your license? And this 300-pound man gets out and beats the living crap out of her and leaves her on the side of the road. Sorry, I know I shouldn't say crap in the sermon, that gun on that woman's hip says, my job is to do violence. This is not good. It is not according to our natural creational design. So to summarize this, I am a broad complementarian because I don't think that God's explicit ordering of the church in the home is arbitrary. Like, I don't think out of all the human institutions, God came along and he was like, okay, I just want these two to be ordered, to according, uh, ordered according to headship and submission. But everything else, there will be really no big difference. And I want to show you that from one place in particular. You don't even have to turn there. Just try to follow my argument. In 1 Timothy 2, when God says that a woman must not exercise authority in the church... When he kind of argues his point, he does not point to the church itself and say the church is this unique entity wherein headship and submission exists. No, what does he do? He points to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 2. He says Adam was created first, then Eve. Now whether you're tracking the the ordering argument there, the point is, is that he doesn't point to the church and say the church is unique. He says all of creation is like this. So I'm a broad complementarian because I think all of creation says that maleness and femaleness ex- uh, expresses itself in headship and submission. And I think we just have these two places in Scripture where that's specifically pointed out. I could go on, but I won't. Point number 12, the fall. This is going to be simple. I just want us to see that in the fall of Genesis 3, the effects of sin are not gender neutral. The curse in Genesis 3 is not gender neutral. Women are cursed in childbirth, which I take to include childbearing, family, home life in, the general, in, in general, and men are cursed in the frustration of their labors. God specifically says, to the man and to the women, as he utters the curse. Finally, point number 13, the solution. In our culture, where much confusion abounds, and even in the church, where much confusion abounds, this is a lot to sort through. I'm not naive. I know that I'm going to be having some tough 
long conversations with members of our church about some of the things that I've said here this morning. But friends, I cannot choose to say what is true and not true from the Bible based upon what kind of frustrations it will create in the congregation, whether or not you'll be angry with me for something that I said that perhaps you haven't considered before. I have to give an account to God for how I've shepherded you. And friends, listen, if you haven't spent more than five seconds thinking about these things, consider that maybe your pastor who spent a long time thinking about these things might have something to say to challenge you. Like maybe God puts you here in this sermon this morning to hear something from me that would challenge you and cause you to consider these things more carefully. Friends, we're in a dangerous place in the church because there's so much confusion about these questions. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? That, and, and there's so few Christians actually addressing it in sermons, Bible studies, books, podcasts, whatever the case may be. The church is not addressing it. And so what are we doing? We're going outside of the church to find our, act, our answers. And what will we find outside of the church? Well, a lot of it is just reactionary. Men have felt like they've been feminized for so long that what do they do? They overcorrect. Now the only way you can be a real man of God is if you carry a gun, drive a truck, and fix things. And Spencer, I'm not singling you out, brother. (laughs) Would that we could all be like Spencer. But what's happening is that Christian men are looking around like, what does it mean to be a man? And they're not finding good answers, so what are they doing? They're turning to Navy SEAL internet personalities like Jocko Willink and David Goggins, essentially the male versions of Oprah. We're turning to Jordan Peterson books more than we're turning to Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And many faithful Christian women, in the same way, they're trying to learn what it means. They, they never had the Titus two women. They weren't discipled to think, okay, this is what it means to image God as a woman. And so what are they doing? Well, especially in conservative circles, they're turning back to Victorian England and, and Jane Austen novels and doilies and satin lace gloves, and they've confused Victorian sensibilities with biblical womanhood. But when I look at the warrior woman in Proverbs 31, I don't see genteel Victorian England. Friends, I'm not trying in this sermon to get us back to the good old days. I'm trying to get you to consider God's word. I'm trying to get you to consider the goodness of God's design for men and women, clearly taught in scripture, clearly pictured in the gospel, clearly evidenced in nature. If we would just stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness for like five seconds, we would actually see it. You know, the end of the matter is this. Try as we might, we cannot transcend our nature. We, we can't. One theologian, he's fond of saying, ontology always trumps autonomy. And if you're like, Sean, I don't know what any of the words in that sentence mean. That's just a really fancy way of saying our nature will always win in the end. So don't fight it. Glory in it. It is good. God created you this way Because it is good for you. It is glorious for him. Glory in the fact that men are designed to provide for and protect for women. Glory in the way that women uniquely image God as mothers and wives and sisters and daughters. Rejoice in the unique ways that moms and dads contribute to the upbringing of their children. Glory in God's good design and purpose for sex. 
do not glory merely in the mechanics of the thing or the pleasure of the thing, but the purpose, the end of the thing, producing little image bearers of God. Glory in how male and female impulses balance one another out like the ballast of the ship, keeping it from tipping one way or another. Glory in the embodied existence that God gave you as a male or a female. For God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Let's pray. Father God, your word is sharp as a double-edged sword, and it pierces us in the best way possible. It challenges us. Lord God, if I've said anything here today that isn't exactly right, I pray that by your spirit you will protect your people from it. If I've said anything that is good and right and true, but perhaps challenging, we pray that your spirit will create in us a heart of humility, ready to receive all the good things that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Lord God, help us to love one another, to believe the gospel, and to carry out the mission that you've called us as men and women. Amen.